This morning is October 2nd. It is uh, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is instruction and obstruction. Instruction and obstruction. As we get ready to go to Psalm 91, which is where the majority of our text will come from today, I want to remind you of a proverb. You hear me quote this a lot because it's just one that I like. Uh, something about it is intriguing to me. Anybody like a good mystery in here? Uh, I've never been like an Agatha Christie reader or anything like that. All of my love for reading came later in the kingdom, so I haven't experienced good mystery novels. But God is a mysterious God in many ways. And, and Proverbs 25.2, I'm going to read you this. You can turn there if you want. If you really don't trust me. <laughs> but it's, we'll, we will be in Psalm 91, so you should mark that. Here's Proverbs 25.2. It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. I don't know. There's something that just intrigues me about that. There are things that God has concealed within His creation, within Himself, within His Word. And when you find a nugget within the Word, don't you feel glorious like a king? Recently, we had revelation into the believer's relationship to the law. I shared some of it on Wednesday night. I've been sharing it everywhere that I go with friends and brothers because I want this to get out. I want people to begin to cling to it because I really think that it's something that's been concealed from many people in our time. And it feels very kingly to hear from the king. Doesn't it? It's beautiful. Well, in Psalm 91, this is a pretty familiar psalm for some people, we have some beautiful poetic language that I want to read to you. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Some of you may have remembered this verse differently because the King James doesn't say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. It says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Anybody understand the relationship between a secret place and a shelter? Your shelter is often a secret place. You know, if, if you didn't want your enemies to come and destroy you, you might have a hidden fortress somewhere. Little kids do this in the woods all the time. They'll go build little forts, at least I did, you know. Build little forts. You don't tell anybody but your closest friends where that is, and that's the hangout. And you set it up like a fortress. That way, not only does, is it hard for somebody to overcome you in it, but it's hard to even find it. Well, we find out that God has a shelter. He has a, it's called the shelter of the Most High, and one translation calls it His secret place kind of a special place. I've read this for years, like I'm sure many of you have. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I thought, wow, that's neat. I like the Fred Hammond song that sings about it. Sounds very pretty. It rolls off the tongue very nice. But what on earth does that mean? And for years, I never really even thought about what it meant. I just, and I, I'd quote it to you. And I could quote Psalm 91, most of it anyway. Whenever something bad was about to happen, I was all excited, you know. Hey, a thousand will fall at this side, ten thousand will fall at that side, which is something written later in the psalm, but it won't come near you. I'd read about his angels guarding you so that your feet aren't dashed against a stone, about treading on the lion and the cobra, but I never thought about the conditional statements that are within Psalm 91. We're going to get there, but Psalm 91 verse 1 is really a powerful thing if you think about it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. What do you think would be important about the shadow of the Almighty? This is kind of poetic language. The Hebrews were figurative in many things. They thought about things in vibrant, imaginative ways. What is the shadow of the Almighty? Why would you want to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty? Yeah, Psalm 121 says, He won't allow the sun to smite you by day nor the moon by night. If you are a nomadic desert people or a farming people, or a shepherding people, which much of ancient Israel was, shade was an important thing. I don't know about you, but twice now, I've been to the Dead Sea area. You can catch a sunburn pretty darn fast there. Shade was something that was nice. In fact, acacia trees that grew in the desert, they love, they call the air conditioners of the desert. You know why? They provide shade, and these things only grow where there's a water source beneath. And it takes a gentle wind to sustain them. So if you can find a row of acacia trees, you're guaranteed to find some gentle breeze, at least more so than the stagnant air where they're not growing, water underneath and shade above you. Very, very nice. So what this author is saying is, 
If you will make God your dwelling place, if you will make the Most High your shelter, then you will enjoy His shade. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Let me read you a couple scriptures out of Mark and a few out of the New Testament to talk about this secret place for a minute. Then we'll get back to Psalm 91. Mark 4, verse 10, and you can turn there or not. I'm going to cover lots of scripture with you this morning. It says, When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. That seems so contrary to me. I would read that and I'd go, my God, why didn't He just tell people? Find out that God hides certain things within Himself. You remember the proverb we started with? It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's to the glory of kings to search it out. God is looking for the kind of person who is willing to get close to Him to find out more about Him, who's willing to draw near to Him. And in that process, God reveals more and more and more of Himself. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of John, it is said that Jesus, or only those came to Jesus to whom Jesus revealed the Father. You couldn't even come to Jesus unless the Spirit of God drew you so that He could reveal the Father. He's concealed from mankind. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, listen to this. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness. You don't think of the Apostle Paul in weakness very often, do you? I came to you in weakness and fear, with much trembling. When you think of Paul or weakness, fear and trembling, things that you tend to associate with it? Probably not, huh? How many great televangelists in this country with their 50-mile-an-hour haircuts and silver suits come to people with weakness, fear, and trembling? No, what do they come with? Gold cufflinks, diamond-studded jewelry, right? Weakness, fear, and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. There is a secret to dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. It's something that is spiritually revealed. Something that Jesus has to show you. Something that you learn over the course of time. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those who have been entrusted with the secret things of God. Then it reminds them, now those that have been given trust, it's required that they prove faithful. In other words, as Christians, we are supposed to possess certain secrets because God is revealing things to us by His Spirit. Well, a secret, that sounds almost esoteric, doesn't it? You could even get into a cultish realm, huh? Ooh, we know something no one else knows, Right? Here's the trick with this, though. God's willing to reveal it to anybody who wants to know. Things that are mysterious to the world are not mysterious to us. Do you know why? Because we're asking, we're looking, we're trying to perceive God, we're drawing near to Him, and so He's revealing Himself to us. They're mysterious to the world because they have no real interest in abiding in the shelter of the Most High. Everybody wants the shade of the Most High. When you're in jail, what do you pray? Lord God, if you'll get me out of this jail, if you'll protect me then, then I'll serve you. The day you get out of jail, you forget about that pledge though, right? When you're in trouble, you cry out to God. This causes the world to look and say, Ah, I knew it. Christianity is just a crutch. It's for the weak. It's for the women and the children. Why is that? Because they see over and over and over people in trouble crying out to God. Well, the shade of the Almighty is something that's important. But it comes from dwelling with the Almighty. If you want the protection of God, the providence of God, the benevolence of God, it comes from being close enough to Him to benefit from His shade. 
Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Well, what is this secret? What are these secret things? Learning of this secret place, we find there's a relationship between the secret place or shelter and the shadow. Let me read to you Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2 again. He who dwells in the shelter or the secret place of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Dwelling in the shelter or the secret place means resting in the shadow. But to dwell in God means that you must trust Him as your fortress, as your refuge, not leaning on your own arm. See, to dwell in the shelter of the Most High means that when threatened, and friends, you will be threatened. There is no way out of that. Whether it is finances or stress or marital relations or children or the weather, you will be threatened. We're tempted all of the time to take matters into our own hands for self-preservation. And we justify it. You know, an amazing thing. It's a quote from my friend Brad Lively. It's an amazing thing. Whatever your heart wants, your mind tends to justify. If what your heart wants is to lash back at somebody, your mind will find a way to justify doing that. Well, if I didn't do that, then blah, 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 blah. Whatever you want to do, you can find a way to justify. What this entire psalm that we're going to cover today is predicated upon is if you want God's deliverance, if you want God as a fortress, then you must dwell with Him. And what does he say? He says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. See, that's the ultimate thing about this relationship that you really have got to get deep down in you is when we leave the uh, abode of God, the dwelling place of God, to take matters into our own hands, it's because we don't trust Him. I use the example Wednesday night. If I take my son out into the deep end and he freaks out like a cat that you're trying to shove into a box, it's because he does not trust that Daddy is going to protect him. His fear of the water has overwhelmed his faith in his Father. Now, can you relate to that at all? Has God never brought you so far out into the deep end that your fear of the water overwhelmed your faith of the Father? I've been there. If you haven't, you need to think back. I bet you have. You just haven't been honest with yourself about it. I read a story this morning. It was about a storm and it wrecked a ship. The only survivor was a frail little boy. In the middle of the night when the ship was wrecked, the little boy was swept by the waves onto a rock. He clung to the rock all night long. In the morning, when the search parties found him, one of the rescuers asked him, Weren't you scared? And didn't you tremble all night while you were clinging to the rock? The little boy answered, answered, and it was profound. He says, I surely did tremble, but the rock did not move. We're human. We can't help but tremble. That's just part of the human experience. Your knees are going to buckle at times. But the rock and the refuge on which we stand, it never does tremble. Trusting in God is our refuge. By dwelling in God is the key to everything in the kingdom. Never being pushed off of your rock that you're clinging to. Sure, there are storms all around you. You have a fear that you might drown. It's totally natural. And yet, God requires of you the supernatural. Cling to the rock. Now, when we say trust God, what does that mean? Let me define this Hebrew word for you. It's betach. <laughs> like, if you're going to pronounce this phonetically, B-E-Y-B-E-T-A-C-H. And that's that Hebrew sound that comes from the back of your throat. I don't know how to spell that phonetically. Everybody does it A-C-H. Betach. And this word means to trust. That's why they translated it trust. Or to have confidence in. Or to be confident. Now, if you're trusting, if you really trust, there's a certain confidence that comes from that trust. If you really trust that because you are dwelling with God, He is a shelter and a shadow over you, protecting you, then you ought to be able to display some confidence. That means that even though everybody's flooding, 
and you're tempted to have fear just like they are, you can have confidence in your God because you believe His Word's true. doesn't just mean confidence or to be confident. It also means bold. To be bold. Your trust in God will cause you to be bold in circumstances where others are overcome by fear. Your trust in God will compel you and endow you with a boldness that others don't have. These are the stories where you hear about missionaries at border crossings where there are guards with guns. But because God said, get to the other side, and they trust in God, they realize His shadows over them all of the time because they're dwelling with Him. They can be bold and look at the border crossing and say, God said, I'm coming through. Is it because bullets bounce off of these guys? No, not at all. I assure you. They get coronary artery disease. They get prostate cancer. They get all of those things just like all the rest of us. But they're not trusting in their own arm for salvation. You know, the Scripture says a a horse, a chariot, is a vain hope. It's a vain hope for salvation. And then if you lean on your own arm, you're cursed. Now, that's a hard thing not to do. What's the first thing you do when trauma happens? First thing you tend to do is look to see how you can fix it. It's totally natural. Why wouldn't you? God has to get you to a place in your walk on a regular basis where you're absolutely certain you can't fix it. When you're at the end of your means, then it takes supernatural means. Super big. (laughs) We saw a Hispanic commercial the other day and the only English words in it were super big. Now that I think about it, that probably was not advertising a product that we ought to talk about in church. Huh? <laughs> okay. Not only to trust or have confidence, but to be bold. You know what another meaning of the word is? A way you can translate that word? Secure. People that really trust God ought to have a sense of security. Not always fearing loss. Not always thinking that they're going to die. Not always scared about every little thing. Christians often live like those little ferrets that you see on National Geographic, sticking their head out of the hole, always looking to see what's coming to eat them. You know, the Bible does not say Satan's a lion. That is a big misconception. It says he is like a lion. My friend Reinhardt says he's a chihuahua with a megaphone. (laughs) We need to quit being so fearful about everything. I'm glad that people evacuated. I was one of them. And I think at times it's a wise thing to do. But if you did it because you were fearful, you did something that was not in faith, and therefore it's sin. Say, well, I wasn't fearful. It was just wise. Okay. You're the only one that can really make that determination. But I was one time at a meeting with 50,000 Christian men. This ought to be a powerful thing, right? 50,000 Christian men. Most of them big, powerful football player type people, right? There was a storm coming. The leader of this meeting stood up and said, Let us pray that God will split this storm. It was not a minute and 30 seconds later, the same man yelled at the microphone, Everybody run! They ran, jumped over the fences. They were, I mean, looked like rats running from a fire. Now, I don't know if Matthew and I were the only two stupid ones there or what, but when they said, let's pray God split the storm, I thought that's what they meant. And I didn't feel like a minute and 30 second conversation was long enough. If we were discussing dismantling a nuclear bomb, wouldn't you think it would take longer than a minute and 30 seconds? We were asking God to dismantle a storm that was destroying buildings. And they gave Him a full minute and 30 seconds of their attention before they ran. could be that they were just very wise. I don't know. You make the decision. Or it could be that they were so filled with fear there was no faith there. 50,000 Christian men. I bet if there had been 50,000 Christian women there, they'd have split the storm. The additional part to that is after when the storm came through, many of them were still standing in the rain. And once again, there's only a, I mean, literally a handful of men yeah. in the center. Everybody That's right. It's still raining. And in the midst of all the storm, Said, okay, the trouble is here. What are we going to do now? That's it. They had us harp on the entire floor. <laughs> you know what we decided to do? Rejoice in our suffering. We went to the football field, started on the 50 yard line, ran to the 25 as fast as we could, and slid into the end. <laughs> yeah, because, because that probably won't make it on the CD with the uh, voices not picking up. We found ourselves in the middle of a football field that was essentially a big slip and slide. We had fun, you know? 
Isn't it amazing some are fearful in every situation and others find a reason to be joyful in every situation? Okay, the perspective makes all the difference in the world. Real trust in God causes you to have confidence, boldness, security. You know what the last definition was? To feel safe or to be carefree. Now, that's the definition, according to one translator, of the same word that they translated trust, betach. Get that. To be carefree or to feel safe. To be carefree. Man, what the world would give to be carefree, but it's an enigma to them. It's an enigma to most Christians because they never really dwelt in the secret places with God. They talk about Him from afar. They talk about enjoying His shadow but they don't really dwell with Him. If they did, they would be carefree. They would be trusting. They'd be bold. They'd be secure. They'd be confident. The reason more people don't come into Christianity is because of the people that call themselves Christians. The wormy, the nerdy, the hypocritical, the self-righteous. All the people you don't want to emulate, the cowards. I was so happy when somebody told me that the book of Revelation said that cowards will not inherit the kingdom. I sure don't want to spend an eternity with somebody with a big fat yellow streak on their back. Now, I'm not telling you that we have to be six feet tall and bulletproof. You just have to dwell with God and rest secure in His shadow. That's all you have to do. Psalm 91, verse 3. Am I putting you all to sleep yet? No. Okay. Psalm 91, verse 3. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. God never says that there will not be problems. In fact, He says just the opposite. He will save you. He will shield you. He will protect you in trouble. This should create in you a faith that says in the words of Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Come on. Have you ever been into a place where the mountains fell into the heart of the sea and the raging waters quaked with their surging? Surely the Hebrews are drawing for us a vivid image. They're saying, oh, you know what we say? We said, man, we felt like our world was coming apart. This is the Hebrew equivalent. I felt like the whole world was collapsing on me. But God is my ever-present help in times of trouble. Where does that confidence come from? Trusting in Him. Dwelling in His presence. Abiding in Him. You know how Jesus could be standing there and they want to stone Him? And it says, but it wasn't His time? It's not because Jesus went, oh my God, and bit His fingernails and crawled out the back. It's because God was with Him and He was in His shadow, Jesus was bold, confident, and secure. Nothing could happen to Him outside of the will of the Father. That's why I could look at a man that says, don't you realize I have the authority to put you to death? And go, you don't have any authority my Father hadn't given you. Spend your whole life scared your boss is going to fire you. Spend your whole life scared your wife is going to leave you. Spend your whole life scared your husband's going to leave you or that your children are going to get sick or that you won't have this or won't have that. Nothing can happen to you that God doesn't allow to happen to you if you're dwelling with Him. Now, it's a whole different story if you go backslide for ten years and hide from the shadow of God. whole different story. You play in the neighbor's yard and you might get bit by his dog. Come what may, you dwell with God and are secure in His shadow. You have found the rock that will not tremble, like the little boy. I was trembling, but the rock was secure. Psalm 61 verse 1 says this, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Lord, I'm calling to you from the other end of the earth. Show me that rock that won't tremble. Show me the rock that is higher than I. We're going to find out in Psalm 91, God allows you to be surrounded by troubles 
to get you to call out. Show me the way that is higher than my way. Show me what is immovable, Lord. I feel like I'm shaking and coming apart. It's not wrong for Christians to feel that way. God has put you in a place to cause you to feel that way. Because when you are certain that you're not capable, when you're certain that you are not righteous, when you're certain that in yourself you don't have the strength, there's only one source left to go to. And He'll even put that source in you. What is all of this wings and fowler snare business? Let me read one more Scripture and then I'll explain that. In Psalm 124, and I'm sorry I haven't given you all time to turn to these Scriptures today. I'm counting on you to trust me today to write them down. And then, God willing, go home and study. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of Yahweh, the Maker of heaven and earth. Back to Psalm 91. I'll read to you and we'll talk about the fowler's snare and the wings. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Well, many of you know, and I share this often, but this morning you'll get more of it. Why did they picture God as having wings? Well, there's a couple reasons. The first one is, because of the prayer shawl, the garment, the four-cornered garment that Numbers 15 says all Jews were supposed to wear, had four corners on it. And in those corners, they had to have blue thread. Later, these threads became knotted and called zitzit. They knotted them for the number of commands because this garment was supposed to remind you of the authority God had given you. It was supposed to remind you of the covenants, the mitzvahs that God wanted you to meditate on day and night. And so as all of these Jews wore this and these corners were, dare I say, a memory tool, they would touch the corners of these garments and remember God was with them. Every time they saw somebody else wearing it, they'd remember that this was supposed to mean you were clothed in the Word. You were clothed in the authority from on high. Well, they pictured God wearing that. And as you would stretch out your arms to cover or protect someone, all of the fringes, and you can see the garment over here on the, your left, my right, all of the fringes would spread out and it would look like a mother hen or some bird protecting her young, covering them. So they, in their mind, envisioned God with wings, but that's, that's not the only reason. In Deuteronomy 32, and I am going to read you this one, I found out something, Judah, that you will love this morning. So listen up to this part, okay? In Deuteronomy 32, which I'm trying to get to, right in the midst of God's Torah, the foundation for all of His revelation, we see these verses. Verse 9, For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob His allotted inheritance. In a desert land He found Him, In a barren and howling waste, He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of His eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on the pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. When the Hebrews learned of God's goodness, when the nation of Israel learned about how good God was, Not only did they envision Him covering them with His authority, covering Him with the tzitzit that they wore, they could look in nature. And Psalm 19 teaches that even the creation witnesses about the glory of God. And they said, you take care of us like an eagle takes care of its young. Now, we live in a country where an eagle is something that is forefront in our imagery, in our mind. We think of it being strong and fierce, right? Well, something that I had no idea about And Judah, you probably already knew this. Eagles are fantastic parents. In fact, what this is speaking about, apparently, in nature, and the Hebrews were familiar with this because they were people of nature, an eagle will take its young out of the nest, fly into the sky. Obviously, you don't fly into the earth, right? (laughs) Gain elevation and drop them. That sounds like a horrible parent. I thought you said I was, I was going to describe a good parent. They fly way up high as they can in the sky and they drop their babies one at a time. 
And they wait to see if the baby will fly. And they follow it all the way down. Sometimes as low to a hundred feet off the ground. And if the baby hasn't flown, they catch it and repeat the process until the baby's tired. Then they put them back in the net and they grab the next baby. Now, that's profound. And one of the reasons that it's profound if you think about this is that is exactly what God does with you. He teaches you. He takes you to a place where you have to depend upon Him. And then you feel a slight separation from His presence. And in your falling, what do you think that baby is doing? Help! 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 Dad, did you forget me? I'm, hey, 200 feet, 250 feet, 225 feet. I'm at 100 feet here. And at that time, Daddy saves the eagle. Probably the mom. I have no idea whether it's male or female. But what I'm trying to say is it's a process by which over and over the baby is exposed to danger to learn to fly. God uses the perilous things in our lives to teach us to soar in His presence. So, well, when I walk in the anointing, that's flying, friends. That's being heavenly minded. That's having your thoughts on the things God has His thoughts on. Jesus was in that place all of the time. That's why it didn't matter whether they were trying to kill Him. It didn't matter whether the storm was overwhelming the boat while the apostles are there crying, Lord, save us! We're going to be swamped and drowned. Jesus said, is your face still so small? They had forgotten Jesus was in the boat. Daddy Eagle was going to swoop down and protect him. Israel envisioned themselves carried on the wings of God and protected under the shade of those wings. And so it references that over and over in the Psalms. Isn't that beautiful? But how different is that from the way Christians think of their walk? God wants you fat, rich, happy, blessed, and carnal. That's the way most Christians think. The bigger your limousine is, the nicer your Learjet, the fancier your suits, the more blessing of God. Friends, that is not true. God takes you to the very high places, teaches you about His ways, and then gives you a chance to live them by dropping you. Over and over and over. That's why the motto of our church is perform out there what you've practiced in here. And here we're supposed to learn about the high ways of God so that when you fall out of this church out into the world, you can live the high ways of God. Well, what is the deal with the fowler snare? Can you think of anything more nasty than a poor, sweet, delicate bird, right? Caught by its feet in a snare, flapping seriously, trying to get away. It's a horrible thing. Well, if we envision God with wings, and friends, it's just envisionment, okay? Don't anybody in here bust open a pillow and throw feathers everywhere and tell me it's because God visited us, okay? Don't do that. <laughs> not, not this morning, anyway. Maybe next week. <laughs> When you envision God in this way and you envision us as His children being dropped and carried and carried on His wings and protected under His wings and all those things, who would the fowler with his snare be? The enemy. What better way to envision what the enemy wants to do to you? He wants to get a toehold, as Paul said on you. A foothold. He wants to snag you so that you can't soar with God. He wants to break your wings and tear you to pieces. That's why that psalm earlier said, you saved me from the teeth. You saved me from the fowler snare. You saved me from being devoured by the enemy. God uses a serious series of perilous events to train us to trust Him completely. And the enemy tries to thwart that process. Let's see how Exodus describes the relationship. Exodus 19. I'll give you a second to turn to this one. Exodus 19. That's Genesis, Exodus. That's right, brother. We are preaching from the Torah as much as possible. The Torah. Deuteronomy 13 teaches us that the Torah is the foundation for all future revelation. So if you wanted to know whether or not Obadiah was speaking words that were in line with God, and whether or not his prophecy should be included in the canon of Scripture, it had to line up with the Torah, the first five books. The whole Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, lines up with the Torah. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Had He been coming speaking against the law, we wouldn't have a New Testament because the Jews could not have accepted it and it would not have been from God. We'll teach on that later. Exodus 19, verse 3, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. 
Exodus 19? Three? I'm sorry. It's not right? Uh-oh. I bet it's 20. Let's see here. Exodus. Sorry, sorry. Hold on. Give me a second. Oh, okay. 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be My treasured possession. Although the earth is Mine, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. See, what He was telling them is, I am carrying you. I keep allowing things to come into your life. Uh, at this point, four separate times they'd had big, enormous tests in their lives. No water, no food, no Moses. <laughs> Those kind of things. And they had exhibited, in many ways, very little faith. But what God was telling them is, I'm carrying you just like a, in, on being on an eagle's wings. I'm giving you the opportunity to live like my children. And if you will keep my commandments, in other words, dwell in the abode of the Most High, dwell in the shadow, see the Lord as the refuge, then I will take you and make you a treasured possession in all of the earth. There's a cause and effect relationship here. If you'll stay close enough to me to act like me, if you'll treat me like a refuge and trust me, then you will be just like me. All of those things I told you about trust, the confidence, the boldness, the security, the carelessness, if you will, the being carefree, all of those things are attributes of God. God's not scared. God's not worried. God's not insecure. In fact, the Bible says He looks at His enemies and He laughs right before He rains down fire on them. He's the ultimate in security. The ultimate in boldness. The ultimate in confidence. He's the only one that can be that confident without being egocentric. Because He's God and He's right. And what He's teaching us is there's a security in dwelling in Me. And if you'll dwell in Me and trust Me, you will benefit from that relationship. Just like the eagle with the kids. Dwelling with God had meant for Israel that they had enjoyed His shadow. D.L. Moody said something. He said, Trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in your reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God, and you are never to be confounded in this time or for an eternity. Luther said something very similar. He said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. My God, that's so profound that we could preach on just that. Jesus said, if you want to gain life, you need to lose it. You know what that means? That literally means that everything in your life you need to give over to God. Quit being worried about what you have and don't have and loss. We spend so much of our time worried about how other people will react. And if I do that, then they'll do this. We call that peer pressure, but we think it only relates to teenagers. Friends, people are slaves to it. You buy cars that you buy so that people will view you in a certain way. You wear the hairstyles that you wear so people will view you in a certain way. You wear the clothes that you wear so that people will view you in a certain way. There's nothing wrong with having nice cars, nice clothes, and God willing, while I still have a few hairs on my head, having haircuts. But when that begins to determine all of your behavior, when it begins to determine any small portion of your behavior in a contrary sense to what God has for you, then you're living in fear whether you realize it or not. Fear is a faith killer. It is a faith killer. Fear is the opposite of faith. Anything in your life that is motivated by fear needs to be rooted out. So when you're sitting there thinking, well, if I tell him how I really feel, he's going to leave. Or if I don't do this, then my kids are going to get sick and we can't pay for it and this and that and the other. And you begin to fear fear as the feel fear as the motivating factor. It's sin. You're moving ever further from the dwelling place of the Most High. You're outside of His shadow and the fowler is waiting, waiting right there hoping to snag you. Back to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 5. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Did He say there wouldn't be a terror of night? 
Did He say there would not be arrows during the day? Okay, well, we have the day covered and the night covered now. So which part of your day is not filled with trouble? Oh, so much for the God wants you blessed and meaning that in some temporal sense. God wants you blessed. You know how He wants you blessed? He wants you able to endure anything. (laughs) That's God's definition of blessing. You're able to endure anything. He'll throw you in a fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego but see you through it and call you blessed for it. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That sounds to me, friends, like you are in some serious trouble, doesn't it? Oh, well, that can't be God. Steve said he was going to do that, and look at all the trouble he has. Look at all the hardship. That can't be God. Matthew said that God had given him this job. And look, he's struggling. If that was God, this would all be easy. If that was God, God would provide for it. If that was God... All of these assumptions, just like Job's friends. The reality is, the Christian life is hardship. That's why Paul said, if for only this life we have reason to hope, we're to be pitied more than all men. Because like fools, we're being paraded around here. That's what Paul said. Now, am I telling you the Christian life's not fun? No, he had learned the secret or secret place so that he could be content in any situation. Jesus was standing on the earth with people that were trying to kill him, rejoicing at where he was because he considered himself in the presence of God. He said, I'm going to that place to make a place for you. While he was standing on the earth with people that wanted to kill him, he was rejoicing for being in the shelter of the Most High. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked, was verse 8. The Bible doesn't say that we won't be in trouble. It says you won't fear it. Psalm 56, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. I don't know why I cannot read that with a straight face. I watched one of those Burt Reynolds movies with the fat sheriff in hot pursuit. (laughs) Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. Hotly pursuing, pressing their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, when I am afraid, I will trust you. Now, what was the definition of trust again? Confidence, security, carefree, boldness, trust. It's not that you're not subject to fear at all. You're not dominated by it. It comes in one ear and goes out the other as a lie of the enemy. I think it was Joyce Meyer said, Fear is false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. You could learn a lot from those little Jewish boys. Know this, O king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is able to deliver me from the fire. But if not, I still will not serve you. That's what you need to tell every time there's disaster there. Know this, Hurricane Katrina, Rita, or some self-righteous preacher saying that you're damned because you live in a certain area. God is able to deliver me. But if not, I still will not be subject to the fear-mongering that you are. Because He's my security. I dwell in Him. I enjoy His shadow. He's a refuge. And like a baby bird, I am under His wings. He said, but Eric, you fell. That's right, and he caught me. But Eric, you slipped. That's right, and he caught me. I'm just in training yet. People love to talk about preachers who fell. Oh, that preacher did this and did that and did this. Well, if God caught him, he's still in training. Be patient. God's not through with him yet like you. Isn't it funny? The people that are hardest on Christians that have slipped, they're the ones who have made no effort to fly. Hmm. Psalm 34, verse 10. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. That's a good goal. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. In other words... He's right there close to the afflicted. He might even be one of the afflicted, but because he's praising God and his soul is rejoicing, he wants them to hear. This is how Paul and Silas in Acts 16 can be in prison. 
They can be in chains in the inner prison in stocks and be praising God and all the prisoners listening to Him. You find out in the Christian walk, He puts you in trouble so that you can be a benefit to those around you, so that He can save you and they can see it, so that He can save you and you can see it. And this increases your faith. Blessings do not increase your faith. Praise God. I'm rich beyond belief. Look how faithful I am. That is the biggest garbage truck that's ever been given to the church. That's why Jesus said the poor are rich in faith. I sought the Lord and He answered me. I understand if you haven't turned to this verse because I've been telling you all not to turn there. Make a note. It's Psalm 34. And uh, I told you it was verse 10. It's not right. We're in verse 4, right? Now we're in 4. You ought to underline it, make a note to go back and underline it. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. He delivered me from all of my fears. Every time you're tempted to make a decision based on being scared, fearful of anything, you need to seek the Lord so that He can deliver you from that fear. Nothing gets under my skin worse. No, I mean really, nothing gets under my skin worse except maybe seeing Bibles left in here week after week that aren't being read. (laughs) Those who look to Him are radiant. Now, earlier they were called afflicted, but because they're looking at Him, now they're called radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Now, I have a feeling that's for people with eyes to see. Somebody can look at a Christian in a concentration camp and I can see the glory of God on him and everybody else sees shame, persecution. Listen to this verse. This is so beautiful. Verse 6. This is David now. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him from all of his troubles. This poor man. Do you know who David was at this time in his life? David was the king of Israel at this time in his life, but experiencing hardship. And he says, this poor man called to the Lord. Poor. David, the king of Israel, referred to himself as poor. See, something that is vital... Vital, vital, vital. Is when we're talking about boldness, when we're talking about security and confidence, this is a boldness, a security and confidence that comes from who you dwell with and not who you are. That's why David could have natural resources but call himself poor and yet still be confident. He was confident in the one that held him. He was confident in his God because he trusted him. See, that's the heart of this matter. It's how much do you trust Jesus? How much do you trust Him? Do you trust Him enough to do what His Word says? You say, well, yes, I do. Not if you're not doing what His Word says. If you're filled with anxiety, if you refuse to give every area of your life, here's a one-time mention that you can just hear and then I'm going to move on, every area of your life, that includes finances, relationships, marital relationships, every area of your life to Him, you don't trust Him. You're in the process of learning to trust Him. You're falling, waiting to be caught by Him. We have to trust. And when you trust, you dwell in the shadow. Here's a vote of confidence. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. When we say deliver, we so often think from. He was talking about the afflicted. He says the angel of the Lord encamps around them. In other words, you can be in the middle of a sandstorm. That's what I meant to say. A sandstorm and the angels encamped around you. What does that mean? You're dwelling with God. His presence is around you no matter where you are. You can be in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, do you understand David's insight into writing the 23rd Psalm? And God's with you. doesn't matter. He descends into the depths with you because He loves you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When thinking of being delivered from your fears, a certain 2nd century Christian gave the following testimony, and it's something to think about. Having to do with fear, particularly fear of loss. You ready? In the second century, a Christian was brought before a pagan ruler and told to renounce his faith. If you don't do it, I will banish you, threatened the king. The man smiled and answered, 
You can't banish me from Christ. For he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Frustrated king says, Then I will confiscate your property and take all of your possessions. Again, the man smiled and said, My treasures are laid up on high, and you can't get to them. For I'm certain you are not a part of that kingdom. The king became furious and shouted, I will kill you then. Why, the man answered, I've been dead for 40 years. I died with Christ. I'm dead to the world. My life is hidden in Him, and you cannot touch it. In desperation, the king turned to his advisors and said, what do y'all recommend we do with this fanatic? He couldn't find a single thing that the man was scared of losing because he had lost his life that he might gain it in Christ. When you get to that place, when you get to a place where you really don't care as long as you're dwelling with Jesus, what kind of trouble surrounds you? When you're not worried about the Rolex watch, the nice car, or the spouse that is on the edge because you trust Jesus, He'll always catch you. Always. Back to Psalm 91. I promise we'll get to an end here. Psalm 91, verse 9. If you make the Most High your dwelling... Isn't it funny that we keep reading that same phrase over and over again in this psalm? If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. If you stay close to Jesus, If you dwell in His ways. What does that mean? If you make the Lord your refuge. What does it mean to dwell in His presence, dwell in His ways? It means live according to His Word. You cannot claim to have fellowship with the Father, 1 John says, and walk in darkness. Say, oh, I love Jesus and He loves me. But I say what I want to and I do what I want to. That doesn't sound like He's Lord to me. Oh, I love Jesus, but... There is no but. You either love Him and you submit to Him, or you don't. And every time you become aware of an area of your life that's not submitted to Him, you resubmit it because He's Lord. He realizes that you're going to mess up. That's not an excuse to mess up. It's grace to try to get it right. Does that make sense to you? If you say that you're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, you better be living according to His Word. Now, I recently found out that His Word said some things that I didn't realize that it said. You know? Something in my life that I just never realized was wrong. Does that surprise you? We're led by the Spirit, though. Yeah, and it's a lifelong process. I've been led by the Spirit now for 12 years, and I had never realized that something offended God. Just found out. What does that mean? Now incumbent upon me not to do that thing. We're held accountable for our revelation. To him who's been given much, much is required. Well, what's the converse of that? If you had not been given much, not as much is required of you. More is required of you who have a full copy of the Word of God sitting in your lap right now than somebody who's never gotten that. They're held accountable to what God's revealed. What's that mean about you, though, who are hearing two sermons a week have access to all the study materials in the world and the church on every corner and radio that broadcasts it and TV that broadcasts What do you think you'd be held accountable for? I was witnessing to a guy in a truck on the way to New Orleans one time in 1993 and he literally covered his ears with both hands, which was scary because he was driving and said, stop telling me, I don't want to know anymore. I said, it's too late. You know now. I just poured it on. He's a great big old guy too. And it was funny because he acted like a little kid just stomping his feet covering his ears, said, I don't want to hear anymore. So that won't help you. You know now. If he didn't know before, he knows now. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. By dwelling with God, He becomes our protection. His Word and the lifestyle that His Word teaches protect us as do the angels. See, we want to focus just on the angels. They're coming to rescue you. They're coming to protect you. It is also the lifestyle that living in His Word produces, that protects you. In Ephesians 6, when we read about armor, belts of truth, sword of the Spirit, Shield of faith, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. Those are all things that are the product of a godly lifestyle. That's the product of living 
living in God. And so the result is protection. We pray for angels to bail us out when our very lifestyle has put us in the position we're in. We call for the shadow of the Almighty to come and shade us from the hot sun when it was our running from Him that put us in the hot sun. I'm not telling you not to call out for help. He'll help you. He's full of mercy. But you do need to realize how you got there. The neighbor's dog keeps biting me, Daddy. You've got to do something about it. The neighbor's dog keeps biting me, Daddy. You've got to do something about it. Daddy, the neighbor's dog's tearing my leg off. Well, get out of the neighbor's yard, son. You know? That really is where Christians are half the time. I don't know why I'm struggling with lustful thoughts. I don't know why I'm struggling with lustful thoughts. Anybody have another movie I can watch? You know, we do things that are contrary to the godly life that God wants for us and then are surprised when the results are garbage. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We know what angels will protect us. I'm more concerned with your lifestyle protecting you. Proverbs 3, verse 21 says this, My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. He's talking about a godly lifestyle. Preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you and ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Isn't it neat that every verse that you find in the Bible can be derived from another verse? Scripture in light of Scripture. How many of those principles are also in Psalm 91? How many of them are in Psalm 46? Or Psalm 69? I mean, it's over and over and over. It's because the very character of God is revealed in His Word. Especially in the Torah. His righteousness is. God is our refuge. I want to tell you something. I've got just a few minutes left to do this. About a refuge and a way to think about God and dwelling with God. See, because so far the imagery that I've given you is that you are dwelling with God and therefore benefiting from His protection. But really the goal and plan of God in humanity is for God to dwell with men. Not just men to dwell with God. See, us dwelling with Him invites the, the thought that you're leaving this place and going to Him. Whether it's in your thoughts or whether it's physically. When the reality is God has made a way for His presence to come to you. You draw near to Him and He draws near to you. In fact, in the New Testament we find the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A permanent adoption by God of you as His Son, His Spirit being in you. Okay? So with that in mind, I want to tell you about France. <laughs> it's hard to find a military example of France that is admirable uh, these days because we're often at odds with the French. But here's a good one. Between World Wars, World War I and World War II, the French built an 87-mile-long defensive line on its border with Germany called the Maginot Line. Don't ask me to say that again. We'll spell it and get Piro to say it later. The Maginot Line. I got no idea. Yeah, don't hold your nose. This is an 87-mile defensive line along the border. It's where they thought they might get invaded. And they did three things on this border. One was small fortified barracks. The first line of defense were small fortified barracks. And the idea was, when you see the Germans coming... Alarm the rest of us, okay? You're basically here as cannon fodder. We want you to get off the warning before they attack. The second were reinforced bunkers. A little bit more difficult, right? Slow the enemy down. The third were something called orvage. That was the French word for it. Orvage. These were deeply buried, multi-storied forts with ammo and water and food for months and months and months in the basement. Now, what's interesting is this was built between the two world wars. Uh, everybody knows that large portions of France were occupied by the Germans, right? When the Germans attacked this 87-mile long fortress, they easily overcame the first line of defense. They pretty easily overcame the second line of defense. But when they got to the Orvage, 
They didn't even try. You know why? They considered it wasn't worth their time. They went somewhere else that was less defended. Because when they looked, it was said that the Germans saw the buildings, saw how far they went into the earth, they couldn't be bombed out, and if you could bomb them consistently, they said their stores of ammunition and food and water seem inexhaustible. It's not worth even trying. And they went in a different place. Now, why on earth am I telling you that? It's because as a Christian... When God dwells in us, you have in you what it takes to last any enemy attack, to outlast anything. He will become in you a well of life, welling up to salvation. Salvation temporally, physically, now. He will sustain you so that the enemy will be looking and say, I'm going to get that Stephen Richards. And maybe he gets him to stumble a little bit. But he keeps pushing. He gets to the first defense. And he gets to the second defense. And finally... The spirit in Stephen is welling up there and the enemy goes, whoa, wait. Uh, I better go pick on somebody else. Who's Stephen's neighbor? I'll go rob from him instead. That's exactly what happens. He'll pick an easier target because he'll look and see your fortifications, what's in you, is inexhaustible. And that's how God is for us. Psalm 91. I tell you what, I'm going to read you one more before this. This one's called the miserable supposer. Supposer. This is on the note of fear of being an enemy. There was a poor woman who earned her living by hard labor, who was joyful. I'm sorry. There was a poor woman who earned her living by hard labor, but who was a joyous, triumphant Christian. Now, to some people, those two couldn't go together. Hard labor and joyful, triumphant Christian. But this was a woman who did. Ah, Nancy said the gloomy Christian lady to her one day, It is well to be happy now, but I should think the thoughts of the future would sober you. Suppose, for instance, you should have a spell of sickness and be unable to work. Or suppose your present employer should move away and no one would give you a job. Suppose... Stop, cried Nancy. I never suppose. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. You know, dear, it's all those supposes that are making you so miserable. You had better give them all up now and just learn to trust the Lord. How many people have you known like that? I was talking with a good friend the other day that was describing a relationship and said, you know, no matter what the problem is, they're able to make themselves a victim. That is the opposite of faith. It doesn't make them a bad person. It means they need to be taught. When you as Christians who are supposed to know better are looking for every supposed problem that could come, you know, dear God, the sky is falling, a chicken little syndrome, all of the time, it is destructive to your faith. Faith is trust, and trust breeds confidence in God. Psalm 91, verse 14. Because He loves me, says... Y'all got to relax, there's only two more verses. (laughs) Because He loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue Him. I will protect Him, for He acknowledges my name. A cursory reading of Psalm 91 from beginning to end will give you the feeling that somebody is surrounded by trouble, surrounded by trouble, surrounded by trouble, and finally calls out to His name. And God says, oh, well, He loves me. I'll protect Him, for He acknowledges my name. This was the goal. When God flew you up to the heights and then dropped you, It was because He was waiting for the moment when you would call out His name. And then He would catch you again. He will call upon me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will be with Him in trouble. If you're in trouble and you're in God, hang on. Salvation's on the way. He doesn't say, I will be outside of the trouble ready to deliver Him from it. He says, I will be with Him in trouble. So if you're a Christian and you're in trouble, it means God is with you. If you're a Christian and you're in trouble, then God is with you. It's a good place to be. Our job is to acknowledge the Lord, to call to Him and to admit our helplessness, and then to submit to His instruction. You remember what the title of the message was? No, y'all have already forgotten because I've bored you to death. The title of the message, Instruction and Obstruction. A pilot was having trouble bringing his plane down to land. From the control tower, he was given instructions. 
But there's a pole there, he objected. The answer came back. You take care of the instructions and we will take care of the obstructions. So it is with the child of God. In the Word, he or she has God's instructions. God will take care of the obstructions. It's our duty to obey the instructions. We spend all of our time worried about the obstructions in our path. All we have to do is follow the instructions. Let me finish Psalm 91. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. So we have somebody who's decided to make God's life, His secret wisdom, a way of life for them so that they're said to be dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. That promises that God then protects them. Then you see them surrounded by trouble on every side. Ten thousand falling, a thousand falling, pestilence, plague, arrows, fowler snares. And God says, I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. And what was the end of the matter? With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. At the end we can look back and see the salvation of God throughout our lives. Not just a one-time experience. Protestants think of being saved. I got saved in 1993. I got saved in 1936. I got saved. The reality of the Christian life is you are being saved over and over and over and over again because you are continually in trouble and God's salvation is a lifetime process. He's saving you you from the fowler. He's saving you from yourself. He's saving you from everything that could harm you. I'm going to read one last story and we're going to quit. Our thanks to an unknown author for following, for the following lyric testimony to God's providence. I don't know, this sounded like third day to me, but this was written in like the 15th century, so it can't be third day, obviously. Lord, I have never moved a mountain, and I guess I never will. I almost stopped reading when I saw that. No faith, I thought. All the faith that I could muster would not move a small anthill. Yet I will tell you, Lord, I am grateful for the joy of knowing Thee and for all of the mountain moving down through life You have done for me. When I needed some help, You lifted me from the depths of great despair. And when my burdens, pains, and sorrow have been more than I could bear, You always, you have always been my courage to restore life's troubled sea and to move these little mountains that look so big to me. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Many times when I have had problems, and when the bills I've had to pay and the worries and the heartaches just come, kept mounting every day, Lord, I do not know how You did it. I cannot explain the wheres or whys. All I know is that I have seen these mountains turn to blessings in disguise. No, I've never moved a mountain, for my faith was far too small. Yet I thank You, Lord of heaven, You have heard my call. And as long as there are mountains in my life, I will have no fear. For the mountain-moving Jesus is my strength and He is always near. Isn't that awesome? Literally what Psalm 91 means is that because you've dwelt with Him, He'll protect you. You will have trouble after trouble after trouble, but you'll be delivered and see salvation all the days of your life so that you can look back and go, My God, look at what I have endured for Jesus and I am still here and I'm blessed. The mark of a Christian and the measure of a real man is what you've endured for Christ. That's why we love Paul the way we do. There's scarcely another person that we know of who endured more for Jesus. Y'all stand up and let's pray.